Good morning, everyone. My name is Chris Quinn, the youth pastor here at Portland Community Church. So I've actually had a bit of a crazy morning, and I think it's one of those things where God is trying to teach me something of what I am about to preach on. So this morning, what I, normally my routine is I get up and I try and leave my house. I live out in Hillsboro by about 7.30. I get here, get to my office at about 7.45 and do one more run through to be fresh and be ready, take some time to pray. Well, I get to my car, 7.30, nothing. Absolutely nothing. And we have one of those driveways. We live in a townhouse. So it's a single lane driveway. I have no possible way to get my, our other car, my, my Honda Accord that I drive. It's in the garage. Our family car is in the driveway. And so I'm stuck. And so I had to have my daddy drive me here, which makes me feel really uh, humble, you know, because I'm a mid 30 year old man with three children and a wife and all, you know, all that stuff. And I had to be driven to church by my daddy so I could go to work. Okay. But here's the thing is God is good. And we've had some tech problems this morning. And this is what I've learned over the years when it comes to ministry. When things like this go wrong, it's because God is up to something. So I'm praying this morning that you are attentive and you are listening because God has something for you today. So I recently reread the Lord of the Rings trilogy, series of books. And then, of course, I had to rewatch the movies with it at the same time. And I know that's going to just reveal to you that I am an absolute nerd and I'm okay to do that over something like this. I love these movies. The universe that J.R.R. Tolkien created has many themes that correlate really well to the Christian life. And one theme in particular is the theme of hope. You see, throughout the story, the characters want to have hope that their efforts will actually bring about good in their world to defeat evil. Or some characters have lost hope, thinking that the evil they are facing is far too powerful and far too great for it to be defeated. But yet the beautiful thing about what happens in this story is that each and every one of these characters pushes through and continues going despite the hope that they may have lost. And I think this relates much in the same way to with our passage that we're going to study today. You see, the people of Judah had been taken into exile in Babylon. They had been demoralized by the conquering Babylon army and how they attacked their city. They had burned it to the ground, including their beloved temple. And their temple had been burned to the ground as well. And their important artifacts within the temple had been ransacked and taken away. Their entire livelihood was gone. And they had, they were, many of them were forced to move. You see, it would make sense for them to have lost hope. And many of you may have lost hope in different ways over the last eight months through this pandemic and its effects on our society. Many of you have lost jobs, lost significant income from your business. You might have lost a family member or a friend or had significant life events drastically altered. Some of you are worried about the political division that we are facing right now in our country from this election and from the riots that have taken place. You may wonder what God is up to and where he is in all of this in the middle of it. You see, it is easy to lose hope in these circumstances, especially when it seems like there's just one after the other. And so we can feel like hope is impossible when we only focus on the problems around us 
But what I really hope that you learn this morning from our text is that there is always hope when we hope in what God will do and has done in Christ. And so this morning, we're going to look at three reasons why there is hope and so why there is always hope. And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 51. We're going to be covering verses 34 through 58, but we'll also cover the very end, the very four last verses, because I think they're really crucial to understanding the book as a whole. And so I'm going to summarize things for you really quick about this section because I was given chapters 46 through 52. So I'm going to summarize 46 through 51 for you to kind of prime the pump to let you know what's going on. So what you're going to see on the screen are clips of the overview poster done by a group called the Bible Project that's based out of Portland. They make these animated videos to describe how the Bible, books of the Bible, uh, how the argument of the flow of argument goes in these books. It's beautiful how they do it. And so in chapters 46 through 49, Jeremiah pronounced God's judgment on all of Israel's neighbors and that Babylon was going to be God's outstretched arm of punishment for the wicked wickedness of these nations. And so we ask the question, why did God announce judgment on Israel's neighbors? Well, because of their own wickedness, their own evil. God's patience had run out on them and it was and it was time and to it was time for them to repent, but they had not repented and turned away. But there is this interesting passage in Jeremiah 48, where God weeps at the destruction of Moab. So it gives us this clue that even though God is doing this, he is still sad and he cares deeply for the nations outside of Israel and the church. And so also, if you're familiar with the Babylonians, you know that they were not morally upstanding people either. But yet God used them in this manner. And so sometimes the the Jews would be very confused about this. But we'll see today how God does not let Babylon off the hook for their behavior either. So then we get to chapters 50 and 51, which is where our main passage is going to be. God is also going to judge Babylon for how they acted. Yes, God used them as his outstretched arm, but he did not sign off on their behavior for how they went about conquering these nations. So they are going to have to answer for it. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And then finally, the book of Jeremiah ends with a promise of hope. And that's those last four verses that we're going to look at this morning. It's this beautiful little thing. It seems like if you don't know the whole story of the Bible, it could seem like a throwaway piece of information, but it's actually a beautiful thing that happens. And so let's go ahead. Let's get started in verse 34. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has devoured us. He has thrown us into confusion. He has made us an empty jar. Like a serpent, he has swallowed us and filled his stomach with our delicacies and then has spewed us out. So this verse is written from the perspective of the Jews of Babylon conquering them. How it kind of felt to have such an evil kingdom such as Babylon conquer them. And it's like Jeremiah is speaking out the collective thoughts of the people at that particular moment. They feel as if they've been tossed aside, as if they've been disrespected. They've been plundered. They've lost everything. And not even in a way of being useful, but simply been spit out after overeating. That's the concept that's being displayed for us here. 
And so we get to verse 35. May the violence done to our flesh be on Babylon, say the inhabitants of Zion. May our blood be on those who live in Babylonia, says Jerusalem. So they plea to God to, for have, to have Babylon face judgment for what they have done. They want to see God do something. So again, even though God used Babylon in this way, God is not justifying their behavior because they did some of these things in conquering these nations in cruelty and evil. So then God answers in reply to this call. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. See, I will defend your cause and avenge you. I will dry up her sea and make her springs dry. Look at this. God says, I will defend your cause. I will avenge you. You see, it's crucial for us to understand something at this point when it comes to our passage this morning. God says he will do something or something will happen throughout this passage. He says it 29 times in our passage this morning. That's over one times per passage, okay? So God is emphasizing something here over and over again. You see, as humans, you and I are really talented at saying we're going to do something and then not follow through on it. We're really good at that. Sometimes it's on a less personal level, like promising to take out the trash and we forget to do that. But sometimes it's much worse as promising to stay faithful to a spouse, to spend time with one of your children, or to not follow through on a promise, a very important promise for a friend. And so what God is promising to do here is he's going to dry up their land. He's going to make it absolutely uninhabitable. It's going to be a complete destruction of this city. And so this is going to be a common theme throughout this passage. God will make Babylon uninhabitable. And so what we're going to see throughout this passage, I want you to keep in mind, is we're going to see both a near fulfillment when King Cyrus the Great comes through and he actually destroys uh, or he conquers Babylon, but he still uses the capital of Babylon for the Persian kingdom from that point on, but he doesn't fully destroy it. So some of these passages we know are actually talking about as well a further fulfillment. So there's double, there's two things going on here. There's a near fulfillment and there's a further in the future. This is one of those moments of a further fulfillment because it's a full conquering. It's a total destruction, which actually did not happen at this particular time. So then in verses 37 through 38, God continues, Babylon will be a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals, an object of horror and scorn, a place where no one lives. Her people all roar like young lions. They growl like lion cubs. And so God's going to continue to describe what's going to happen to to Babylon. It's going to be this heap of ruins. You won't even recognize it. And in fact, it'll actually be known more as a desert. That's where the jackals live. Jackals wouldn't come into the middle of a city. They roam the wilderness. And so that's what's happening here. God is saying it's going to be such a destruction that Babylon's going to become a wilderness. No one's going to live anymore, live there anymore. It's going to be ridiculed and laughed at rather than fear. And so they may have been a deeply powerful force at one point, like a lion, but not so anymore. They will be destroyed. God is going to bring them down. Verse 39, but while they are aroused, I will set out a feast for them and make them drunk so that they shout with laughter, then sleep forever and not awake, declares the Lord. I will bring them down like lambs to the slaughter, like rams and goats. 
And so God, now God is going to give them some information. Here's, about, here's how I'm going to accomplish this purpose. He's going to set out a feast for them, and he's going to allow them to get drunk. You have to understand something. The Babylonians were famous, especially the ruling party, for their parties. Okay? And if you think about all the negative stereotypes of what parties could be and can be in our day, multiply that by about 50, and that's what you get with Babylon. Okay, a lot of gross, weird, awkward stuff would happen and lots of alcohol. And so this is actually reminiscent of a scene that happens in Daniel chapter 5 where the Babylonian king at the time, Belshazzar, he throws this lavish feast for everybody. He brings out some of these precious goblets that they had taken from the Israelite temple that were used in the worship of God. And they used it to drink alcohol and to throw a big party. But while at that party, God decides it's time to tell Belshazzar about what his plans are. And so he writes an inscription on the wall that it basically tells him, your time is coming, you are going to die, and Babylon's going to be conquered. And it says in the text, later that night, Belshazzar was killed, <laughs> and somebody else came into power. And we believe there's one way you can interpret it, that this is the moment when King Cyrus comes in and conquers Babylon. So this is kind of reminiscent of it, but it's also reminiscent of this concept of this cup in imagery that's within the Bible that means drinking the cup of God's wrath, God's judgment. So they are going to drink it and they're not even going to be aware of it. They're like a lamb being led to slaughter. You know, a lamb has no idea what's happening. They're being brought to this slaughter. And so he uses these animals as a way to say they are defenseless, they're helpless. And this is what Babylon is going to be like. They're, they're not going to be this world power anymore. They're going to be helpless because the God of the universe is coming to destroy them. So then it continues, verse 41. How Shishak will be captured, the boast of the whole earth seized. How desolate Babylon will be among the nations. The sea will rise over Babylon. Its roaring waves will cover her. You see, Shishak is another name for Babylon, but Babylon was once the crown jewel of the world, and it boasted of its great power. It was the most powerful nation in the world at that time, but now it will be desolate. Quite literally, what Jeremiah is saying is, is writing here is they are going to be a horror to the nations. People are going to look at them and be aghast at what happened. And so you have to understand, the sea that's mentioned here is... It's not a literal sea because Babylon is very, very inland. But what it is, it's used to describe this invading army like a monstrous series of waves that will absolutely engulf Babylon. So God is emphasizing the point how much they are going to be conquered. Verse 43. Her towns will be desolate, a dry and desert land, a land where no one lives, through which no one travels. I will punish Bel in Babylon and make him spew out what he has swallowed. The nations will no longer stream to him, and the wall of Babylon will fall. See, the Lord now reiterates what he's been saying, and he's going to say it again in verse 43. There will be no one in the land of Bab to live in Babylon. It's going to be this desolate wasteland. But then he also makes it very clear who also is the target of this judgment. It's not just the people of Babylon or the rulers of Babylon, but their gods. And that's why he says punish Bel in Babylon. It's this, it's one of their main gods. And having Bel spew out what he has swallowed is a direct answer to verse 34, where the people of Israel say that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had devoured them. 
You see, this is what happened. Many people from Judah, some of the more, I guess, more impressive people of Judah were taken into Babylon, taken into exile. And now God is saying, I am working out a plan to send you back home. What he has devoured, now you're going, he's going to spit out. He's going to send you back home. But as well, the nations will no longer stream to Babylon with their goods, with their treasures. You see, these nations that were conquered would come with tribute because they were told to, because this is what you do when you are a conquered people, and that their walls are going to be destroyed. See, Babylon was famous for its large fortifications and its defenses of their city. You see, in this time, because of how military and war operated, you needed a huge wall to defend your city. And Babylon's were famously large. Look at this. This is actually a replica. This is because the walls were torn down, so they're gone. This this was fulfilled. The inner wall was 21 feet thick. And the outer wall was 12 feet thick. So even if you somehow penetrated that first wall, you'd have to get through a second wall. But there was also a moat around the city. You can see that right here. This is the river Euphrates, how they'd come in. You'd have to come in to enter the city through a normal gate as a welcome guest. You'd come in. These are high walls. You'd come in through here, okay? called the Ishtar Gate, and here's some of their walls. So basically, this looks like an absolutely impossible fortress to penetrate, but yet, as history tells us, the Persian king Cyrus conquered Babylon without ever engaging in battle. That is a total defeat. And so here's our first reason we can always have hope, is that God will always avenge the evil done to his people. You see, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 12 that vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You see, we don't need to wait for superheroes like the Avengers to come and save the day through their powers, and, but with all of their flaws. We simply wait for the perfect judgment and holiness of the Lord to carry out the righteous payment due to those who have committed evil and who are evil. And I want you to remember something I said earlier. In this whole passage we're going to study today, God says he will do something or something will particularly happen 29 times in this passage. God is staking this as a promise that he will do these things. You see, we can often see the evil that we see in the world or the deep pain that we're personally experiencing, and we can allow that to overwhelm our perspective. But it is clear within the pages of Scripture that God will avenge those who are his people. And if you have placed your faith in Christ, pledge your allegiance to him alone through faith, then you are one of his people. This is a promise for you. And eventually, whether in this life or the next, whatever evil happens to God's people will absolutely be avenged and addressed by a good and perfect, loving God. But only let it be God's doing and not your own. Let him be the one to do that. All right, let's continue. Verse 45. Come out of her, my people. Run for your lives. Run from the fierce anger of the Lord. Do not lose heart or be afraid. When rumors are heard in the land, one rumor comes, comes this year, another the next. Rumors of violence in the land and of ruler against ruler. Next slide. There we go. All right. Ruler against ruler. 
So because Babylon will be utterly destroyed and made desolate, God tells his people to come out of Babylon. You see, they were sent there into exile, but at this time, he's now telling them it's time to go. It's time to leave. God's wrath is now directed at against Babylon. He does not want his people to be caught in the crossfire. But he also tells them, don't be afraid. Why is he telling them that? Well, you can see from, the, from this, these verses, there's going to be all kinds of rumors of war. And so war is a, rumors are a normal part of war, especially at this time, because there wasn't internet to be able to confirm those kinds of things. And so there could be rumors that Babylon would actually be victorious, but God wants them to remain steadfast. Babylon will be defeated. Don't fear whatever you are going to hear. So then we get to verse 47. For the time will surely come when I will punish the idols of Babylon. Her whole land will be disgraced and her slain will all lie fallen within her. And again, it's not just because of Babylon's evil deeds in war that they're being punished. God is also punishing their idols, proving that he is the most high God. He is the greatest God. He defeats those puny little gods. And because those gods direct these people to do such horrible evil. And so this is one of the key aspects as to why God comes after nations like this. Because they have become arrogant, believing that their gods are the greatest, even though they commit atrocious evil. And God wants to remind them, he is God, he is in charge, he's the one who rules the world, and he will rule this world in righteousness and justice. And this is what he also did with the people of Egypt in the story of the Exodus. Babylon is going to be totally humbled And disgraced. Verse 48 Then heaven and earth and all that is in them will shout for joy over Babylon. For out of the north, destroyers will attack her, declares the Lord. And so the whole earth is going to rejoice at Babylon's destruction. No longer will people be afraid or threatened by this world power, but they are going to be set free. God gives us a clue here as well as who is going to be the one to do it. And it's going to be attackers, it says, from the north. You see, technically, Persia is actually to the east of Babylon. But if you actually look at an ancient map, you can see just a sliver of Persian kingdom right, just right above to the north of Babylon. But this is, again, one of those moments where we see the near and the future fulfillment. This is a part of the future fulfillment where somebody from the north at the end times will defeat the prototype evil of Babylon. And so then we continue. God gives another reason for why Babylon is up for destruction. Babylon must fall because of Israel's slain. Just as the slain and all the earth have fallen because of Babylon, you, have, you who have escaped the sword, leave and do not linger. Remember the Lord in a distant land and call to mind Jerusalem. And it's because the Babylon is up for destruction because of Israel's slain that lay, that lay on the earth when they came after Israel. You see, yes, again, God was using Babylon as his instrument of judgment against his own people for their evil and wickedness and unfaithfulness to him. But God did not mandate the ways in Babylon, the ways that Babylon did it. And so this is what brings the judgment upon them. And so connecting back to verse 47, they're going to have the same thing happen to them with their dead that they did to their enemies. Their dead will lie fallen on the earth. This is a huge aspect of shame for people in that that culture. 
And so God reminds Israel again, leave Babylon, flee, escape the sword. Don't hesitate, don't linger. But then also call to mind, remember the Lord. Remember Jerusalem, meaning return to Jerusalem. Remember the Lord and his goodness and faithfulness to set them free from their captivity. So then in verse 51, the Israelites speak again. We are disgraced, for we have been insulted, and shame covers our faces, because foreigners have entered the holy places of the Lord's house. They're speaking of their shame over foreigners, the Babylonians entering the temple when they came and conquered the city of Jerusalem. You see, they're recalling how Babylon entered their temple, they desecrated it, and we see this recorded for us in 2 Kings 25, where the ba- Babylon set the temple on fire along with Every other important building that was in Jerusalem, they took away bowls and dishes and other articles used in the temple services. And so for the Israelites, there was such a deep emotional and spiritual connection to the temple because it is where God made his dwelling amongst his people. And so for them, this was like a visible sign that God was allowing for this judgment to come upon them. And that would be deeply shameful for them. But then look at verse 52. But days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish her idols, and throughout her land the wounded will groan. Even if Babylon ascends to the heavens and fortifies her lofty stronghold, I will send destroyers against her, declares the Lord. So because of this, God says that days are coming when he is absolutely going to address this. He will punish their idols. He will wound many of their people. And even if for a time they appear strong and invincible and fortify themselves against this attack, God will still send the destroyers and they will still be victorious. So don't worry about what's going to happen. Verse 54. The sound of a cry comes from Babylon, the sound of great destruction from the land of the Babylonians. And so like the shot heard around the world in our history, the sound of the cry of Babylon at their destruction will be heard around the world. The news will reverberate and travel quickly as people are shocked that this could possibly happen to such a powerful nation. But it's also probably a literal sound of destruction as well as we're going to see in the next verse, verse 55. The Lord will destroy Babylon. He will silence her noisy din. Waves of enemies will rage like great waters. The roar of their voices will resound. So keep in mind, who is the action uh, or the agent of action here? While God is certainly using a nation like Persia to destroy Babylon, it is by the Lord's agency that all of this is happening. He is the one who will silence Babylon's long proclamation of their dominance and power over the world. And that these waves of enemies, this large army coming to attack the city with the roar of their voices resounding over those waves... See, if you've been to the beach on a stormy day or you've been out on a stormy sea, you know how loud waves can be. This emphasizes the point of how loud the roar of the voices of this conquering army will be. So then, verse 56. A destroyer will come against Babylon. Her warriors will be captured and their bows will be broken. For the Lord is a God of retribution. He will repay in full. This destroyer is going to come against Babylon. Her mili- Babylon's military is going to be completely defeated. It will be decimated. They're going to have their warriors captured, their bows broken. 
And again, according to historical record, Babylon was captured with very minimal effort by Cyrus and his army. And so what's important to hear to see is that it says, the Lord is a God of retribution. He will repay in full. You see, many people are uncomfortable with this idea of God being a retributive God. They don't like that idea. But then they're also upset when, at God when, and they ask the question, why does God allow evil in the world if he's such a good God? Well, he does. He addresses it. And this is how you answer that question. God does address evil, but it's always within his time. And he is being patient to allow for those nations that are being wicked to give them some time to repent and realize they are wrong. So then again, in verse 57, he reiterates something he said before. I will make her officials and wise men drunk, her governors, officers, and warriors as well. They will sleep forever and not awake, declares the king, whose name is the Lord Almighty. He's going to make them drunk. Again, this is going back reminiscent of Daniel chapter 5 with King Belshazzar that I mentioned earlier. And even as I mentioned earlier before about the cup of wrath that they are going to drink. God is making this very clear. This is ultimately what's going to do them in and be destroyed forever. But I want you to notice something as well. It says, whose name is the Lord Almighty. Quite literally, that phrase is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. Quite, it's quite fitting in a passage such as this, describing a military conquering of a world power that God would describe himself as the Lord of armies. But again, it shows that God is the one who's the ultimate agent. And then lastly, in verse 8 for this point, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Babylon's thick wall will be leveled and her gates set on fire. The peoples exhaust themselves for nothing. The nation's labor is only fuel for the flames. So to conclude this vision, the Lord Almighty restates things he's already said. The wall is going to be destroyed, even though it's thick and seemingly impenetrable. The city is going to be set on fire. But those last two lines, the peoples exhaust themselves. What he's talking about here is this conquering is absolutely inevitable. Any effort that the Babylonians put out to try and stop this is absolutely inevitable because they're just adding more fuel for the fire by continuing to try and defend themselves. God is absolutely going to win. But I want us to notice a pattern throughout all of these verses that I just blazed through with you. And here's our second reason we can always have hope. That God will always be sovereignly in control of the events of human history and use them for his glory and our good. I know that's a mouthful, but I want you to understand something. Because even when it seems like God has been defeated or good has been defeated in our world, he ultimately will win in the end. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. But I also think there's another aspect to this that we also need to focus on. You see, our culture prizes personal freedom and autonomy from any outside force telling us how to live. So as a result, we tend to struggle and want to be in total control in our lives. We struggle to give control over to God, even though we understand truly what the concept of God's sovereignty actually is. And I have come to realize over the years that much of the Christian life is truly surrender to God's sovereign control of my life. And I think my circumstances this morning actually prove that, that this is what I need to learn. God's sovereignty does not need to be this current that we struggle against. Instead, it ought to be a warm blanket comforting us, knowing that there is a perfect and loving creator who is in control of our lives and knows all of the intimate details of our lives, past, present, and future. 
And so also in the course of human history, this ought to give us a sense of we should not have any fear or doubt, especially over whoever is elected president of our country, no matter what your political affiliation is, because we know that all rulers and authorities are under the sovereign hand of God, and he will work out his purposes in the world, no matter what good or even evil ruler could be in power at the time, because he is God and they are not. Keep that in mind. So let us learn to surrender to this God rather than fight against him about what his purposes are for our lives. And this gives us great hope because we know that God doesn't waste any evil circumstance, any pandemic or any personally tough situations that we face. We know that he will work everything out for his glory and our good. And this is an incredible reason to have hope Because it's not an imperfect person promising this, but the perfect holy God who came and died for us. Now we're going to finish out this morning by looking at chapter 52, 31 through 34, the last four verses of the book of Jeremiah. And it begins with verse 31. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the year Awul Marduk became king of Babylon, on the 25th day of the 12th month, he released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and freed him from prison. Jehoiachin is also known as Jeconiah. He was the 19th king of Judah from the line of David that had been promised to have, a, have a, an, an eternal king on the throne someday. You see, it was during his reign in the 6th century BC that Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem. He dethroned Jehoiachin and took him into captivity to Babylon. And then Nebuchadnezzar replaced Jehoiachin with his uncle Zedekiah, who they then later rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar's rule, and he absolutely paid the price for that rebellion. But Jehoiachin only ruled for a few months before this occurred. And something interesting happened to him in captivity. And we see it here. In the 37th year that he was in exile, the king at the time, Awal Marduk, released him from prison. We don't get any indication as to why that happened. But then look at verse 32. It's not only that. It says, he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. And so this little aspect of things might seem a little strange, but it is truly beautiful what is happening here. He no longer has to wear prison clothes. He eats regularly at the king's table. And then look at verse 34. Day by day, the king of Babylon gave Jehoiachin a regular allowance as long as he lived till the day of his death. So he's given this allowance. He's allowed to move around freely until the day of his death. Why is he getting this kind of favor? It's not clear from the king of Babylon's perspective, but it is very clear from God's perspective. You see, this is God showing his people that even though they are in prison and now in exile, God will release them again. God will restore them, even if it feels like a long time coming. But what he's also doing is he's reminding the Israelites here is that God's promises of a future restoration of a promised eternal king through the line of David has not been stopped. And why is that important? Jehoiachin could have been killed by the king of Babylon along with his uncle. But God, in his incredible sovereignty, kept this line alive that eventually led to Jesus. 
Jesus is in this line. If that man dies, the whole thing is over. God sovereignly kept him alive. And so no conquering king from a foreign land could stop God's purposes to bring his Messiah to this world. And so this is our third reason we can have hope is that God will always work out his plan of salvation for this world and nothing can stop it. A pandemic can't stop it. Government shutdowns and regulations can't stop it. Social distancing and masks can't stop it. Division and disunity politically can't stop it. A contested election can't stop it. No matter who is president or running the world at that moment, they cannot stop God's purpose of salvation for this world. Why? Because Jesus is the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, the everlasting Father, the forever eternal King and creator of this world. It is by him that this world was created just by speaking it into existence. It is by him that the world is sustained by his sovereignty and goodness. It is by him that his promises are carried out even when they seem like they are never going to come. You see, he is far more powerful than anyone or anything that we are going to face in this world. And his purposes cannot be stopped because he is God. So what about your perspective of evil needs to change this morning? Do you need to remember to let God be the one to take vengeance and trust in his sovereign control over the events of human history? Do you need to remember that any evil that is in our world today will all be eventually addressed by the Lord, even if not in this time? Do you also need to remember that God is working everything out in this world for his glory and our good? That someday we're going to look back in the light of eternity and say, wow, God, you used that circumstance for that purpose? You used that horrific world event to accomplish that? You used this circumstance to bring this person to you? We're going to be astonished and amazed seeing the grand scope of history of what God has done. So we need to learn to trust him and how he is going to work things out, especially to bring near to him those who are currently far from him. And this particularly happens at the cross. You see, where a Roman political torture and execution device that brought shame to people became the greatest source of hope in human history. You see, it is at the cross we see God's ultimate way of addressing evil by becoming human and dying for us. This was the great plan for the Messiah that God kept alive by keeping Jehoiachin alive. Not to be the military conquering king just yet, but to be the humble servant that, who willingly traded his life for sinners like you and I. If you want to find the greatest source of hope, turn to Jesus this morning. He is the ultimate source of hope. Admit, admit you've been your own God, making your own choices and rebelling against him in your sin. But that all of your sin will be covered by the blood of Jesus. You are washed clean when you come to him asking for his forgiveness and that you are brought into a new life with him as a result. Don't leave today without sensing this great hope in a great savior beyond a God who brings Vengeance, but a God taking punishment for wicked people like you and I because of his great love. So take some time this week to surrender certain world events to the Lord, like the election, the pandemic, the political tension in our country. Remember that each and every one of them are being held tightly in his hand. 
and as well, surrender yourself to be more focused on his glory and purposes in the world rather than your own and to trust how he will address each and every one of them. And let's finally remember, there is always hope when we hope in what God will do and has done in Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for what you have done through your son, Jesus. God, we thank you that you are sovereignly in control of this entire world, its history, its events. God, let us surrender that control and not be fighting against you, but God, be trusting that you are the one because you are good, you are sovereign, you are loving, you are merciful, that we can trust you. So God, I pray as we continue in our worship this morning that we give you praise, we give you glory, and that we are thankful for who you are and what you do. And we pray this in your name. Amen.